I'm Jesse LeBlanc. I'm Kat Miller, and this is Vines and Wines. We created this podcast to share our favorite activity of discussing financial regulation while drinking wine. Each episode, we dive into the lessons learned from a recent disciplinary action. So grab a glass and let's dive in. Just a couple of quick disclaimers. Nothing we say here should be construed as legal advice. We're not lawyers. However, we do have collectively more than 30 years of experience in the industry. And while our opinions are our own, let us know if anything here resonates with you. We'd love to help you out. Lastly, we dive into cases to discuss the lessons learned and best practices. Nothing we say should be taken as being critical of the firm that is at the center of this case. So I just got to tell you, my my Willamette, my seven dollar Willamette Pinot is like it's amazing. I'm so jealous. Well, but I like I have to pay twenty five bucks for something like yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Well, I was surprised to see it there. The discount grocery store doesn't normally carry the the Willamette Pinots. So like when we saw it, I was thrilled. And then I told Nate, I think they might run to the store, and I was like, buy all of them, just buy all of them, everything. Yeah, I don't care how many they have, just buy all of them. It's not that I don't like California Pinots and I know I'm picky and I recognize that that's just a flaw that I have, that I'm just super picky about my wine, but it just is what it is. I mean, right now I'm drinking gas station wine, so. Exactly. And it's fine. <laughs> and it all is it. better. I know. I know. Can we just talk for two seconds about our awesome trip to Woodenville and getting to visit with the Woodenville wines and all of that stuff? That was, that was amazing. Yes. And not only that, but getting to see some of our bestest friends. I know. We're so fortunate to have we're spoiled. connection and the, and the opportunity. Yes. Adam is wonderful to us. But we just, that was such a wonderful trip. Okay. So we're ready to dive into Finapalooza. Yes. So in September, 2021, the commission staff commenced a risk-based initiative to investigate whether broker dealers were properly retaining business-related communications sent and received on personal devices. Many of the personnel included in these cases were desk heads, investment bankers, and debt and equity traders. So this particular industry sweep, again, started in September, 2021, and it included the time period between January, 2018 and September, 2021. One thing to highlight on this particular case is most firms, not all, but most firms of the 16 hit paid a $125 million fine. A few things we're going to kind of quickly talk about, a little housekeeping, I should say, is in this case, the SEC rules. Jesse and I like to call them a lot of letters and numbers when you're looking at them. So when you read through this, you may not necessarily know what they're referencing, We're really going to focus, or I guess the enforcement action really focused on failure for Exchange Act 17A4 in multiple sections and 15B. So let's talk about what those actually mean to all of us. First of all, this is going to be about retention of originals of all communications received and copies of communications sent by broker-dealers, including inter-office memos and communications relating to its business. Also, broker-dealers are subject to furnish those records to a representative of the commission upon request. If you were were subpoenaed or in the middle of an enforcement, you're supposed to be able to give those uh, records to the commission. And finally, 
failure to supervise. The messages at issue in this case concerned, among other things, broker-dealer business, including investment strategy, discussions around investment banking client meetings, communications about market color, analysis, activity trends, or events in equity capital markets across the United States. It's clear that when you look at the cases, the communications really were business-related. However, I think it would be worth pointing out that most firm policies to the point prior to these cases coming out indicated that communications of an administrative nature on personal devices were permissible. So if you haven't taken a look at your policies as a reflection of these cases, I would suggest you do so, because they may actually say that communication on personal devices is acceptable. I think these cases make it clear that that's probably not the case. So I think the first takeaway that we would want to highlight in these cases has to do with this concept of bring your own device. And I think a lot of firms, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, really set up this concept of bring your own device, particularly because we were all forced into this environment where we had to work from home. And most individuals who were required to do so were not provided with firm issued devices in order to facilitate communications. A lot of people were just expected to use their own personal devices to conduct firm business. It's interesting to me when you think of the timing of these cases, the SEC had to have known that firms had these bring your own device policies, but more specifically that they were having to rely on them heavily during this time period because we were in a global pandemic. Not saying that this should give them a complete pass, but it seems like this is an extreme case of opportunistic gotcha enforcement. So something I reflect when I was thinking about this is to our last event we had prior to the pandemic, Jesse and I and a few other people have always hosted a roundtable. And the hot topic in the general session of this roundtable was how do we let compliance officers work from home? We weren't even going into the whole big thing, but somebody had brought up how do we let compliance officers work from home? We go into a whole OSJ conversation. A week later is when the pandemic happened. We were all like, hey, this would be in theory great, but it's never going to happen. And then immediately all looking at each other as we're trying to implement this and give our trade desks and our financial advisors and everybody a way to work from home because you can't come into the office. Right. I appreciate that you bring up, especially the fact that we weren't really talking about traders and desk heads at that time, because I think that's very relevant that there, there wasn't even a consideration. There was no discussion about, well, how do we let traders work from home? It was never going to happen. And then we were forced into that situation. And it's so curious to me that this particular case is focused on desk heads, investment bankers, debt and equity traders. Those are the very people that we needed to have solutions for. Again, not giving anybody a pass. We obviously needed to have solutions for everybody, but we were kind of caught in a scramble. As much as Jesse and I want to kind of push it, though, onto the pandemic, we all know that this was happening prior. So that being said, we're all used to quick, easy communication back and forth. I mean, that's just what the everyday culture in your private life is. Yeah, it is slightly off topic, but firms cannot simultaneously promote this idea of work-life balance as a core value and at the same time promote this bring-your-own-device policy. And to Kat's point, that's what was happening for years and years and years. If I look back five to 10 years in, in, in my career, I was getting work emails on my phone. I'm one of those people that, for God's sakes, if I see a red dot next to the email icon on my phone at 11 p.m., I'm going to look at it because, God help me, I can't let that sit there until the next morning. It's going to frustrate the crap out of me. So 
I think we live Not in that me. culture. We all know that if you look at my phone, every <laughs> single application is red dotted. Jesse can't even look at my phone without going through <laughs> an entire panic attack. I'm the worst. But also... I'm the person that this is most appropriate for because I am not going to answer the phone when you call me. You could be my best friend. You could be my mom half the time. It doesn't matter. I'm not answering the phone, but if you send me a text, you are going to get a reply right back. I like the culture of like quick, efficient, boom, done. Right. But the point remains, we can't be in this dynamic where we expect people to be on call 24-7, but we say work-life balance is important. If your firm today is not at least issuing devices for the desk heads, the investment bankers, and the debt and equity traders that were targeted in these cases, you definitely need to reconsider that policy. But furthermore, I would go and say you probably should consider that for all employees. I also think we need to consider generational when you talk about work-life balance. And the reason, and again, I'm not an expert and I haven't done any research on this, only what social media has told me, (laughs) but it it appears to me that as they reference the Gen Zers, I've really been pushing that work-life balance. There's been a huge conversation in the recent years. Me, I'm an old millennial, young Gen Xer, depending on who you talk to. And my culture and lifestyle that I was trained is you work hard, you work harder. There's a little bit of play hard, but you need to be available. And you're only going to make money the harder you work. There was no such thing as a work-life balance ever consideration. I mean, Jesse and I worked together. We used to carpool together. Remember back in the day, this <laughs> right. and my position would end up having to manually key tickets in for new issue. As we carpooled, I'd be like, sorry, I don't think I'm going to get out of here until like seven or eight tonight. And I was we like, quickly, that's okay. I'll go to the bar. <laughs> yeah. We quickly didn't carpool. We had another dear friend that had participated in that also. But thinking about that also, how many times did I cancel a date because I had to stay late and work or cancel dinner plans with the friends because I had to stay late and work? Well, and how often were you provided another alternative? How often were you provided a backup plan or somebody else who could do it for you? Exactly. The other issue we really want to highlight here are just the issues relating to supervision. In particular, one thing that firms should really consider doing is reviewing what sort of communication reviews they are conducting for desk heads, investment bankers, and debt and equity traders. If you're only conducting sample-based communication reviews, for one thing, that might not cut it. You cannot and should not deploy the same lexicons for traders as you would for, say, people working on account transfers or on the AML team. The reviews that you're doing should be catered to the area being surveilled. I think this is extremely important for firms to think about. In my life, I feel that most commonly we're talking about capturing financial advisors to customer trans, you know, communication. And and, and 100%, that is absolutely important. But then we take that format and we try to apply it everywhere. And most of these cases, when you read them, they highlight mostly investment banking. But if you go down, it's really keying in. Each one has a bullet point in regards to trade desks and trade supervisors. I think that's a really good point. And I think the one other thing that I would highlight is that the communications that a trader is going to have with a trader at another firm are going to be very, very different than to your point, Kat, about the financial advisor communications or even investment banker communications. They're going to be communicating on instant Bloomberg. They're going to be communicating via other venues. 
they're probably going to have a lot more swear words. They're probably going to be talking a different jargon. They're probably going to be talking just in a very different tenor than what you're going to see in other traditional communications. One thing that I think compliance officers and other people on the sort of first line of defense really need to, first or second line of defense really need to be thinking about is how much time am I spending with the desk? Because if you are not spending enough time with your traders or with your with your business folks, like in investment banking or the desk heads, you may not know what kind of jargon they're using. You may not know what sort of systems they're using. One thing I always like to call out is the fact that in Instant Bloomberg, there is an app you can put on your phone where you are going to send Instant Bloombergs from your phone to people on the desk. I don't know that a lot of people really think about that, that that's an app you can actually add to your phone and just have access to that at all times. Well, and you tested it. It, it is captured in exactly. your systems. It does get captured, which is great, but that's not everything, right? And I think when we think about the crux of this case, which is really related to the WhatsApp app, that's really going to be the issue is what other things are they using to communicate with one another? Technology is going to continue to evolve and we're going to continue to have younger people coming in new off the street, not necessarily realizing what technology can be used and what can't be used. I think we're going to continue to see a proliferation of this. If you're not spending time with your desk, you're probably not less likely to actually get exposure to what they're using and how they're communicating. And you really need to be spending time down there to try to figure those things out. Something important, though, is it wasn't the young people coming in when you read these. The violations were being done by executive directors, supervisory managers, like top end of the trade desk and investment banking. And they were giving that approach to their junior traders. Right or wrong, one of the biggest things I take from this is the people that were initiating this or allowing it and knowing it was happening and allowing it out even though it was outside of what the written supervisory procedures were, had the empowerment to be able to go in and make change. They could have gone in and said, your policies don't work for us. This isn't how it goes. I think you bring up a really good point that the people who were actually facilitating this were the desk heads, the investment bankers, the people who were in more of a senior role within the organization. And they need to be the ones raising the red flag, saying that the policies and procedures are not sufficient to allow them to do business the way that they need to. So there needs to be an ongoing dialogue with compliance to make sure that the policies reflect the business that's actually being conducted and that they're actually using the systems to conduct business that are reflected in the policy. Now, I'll be honest, I personally, in my roles that I've had at other firms, have not had to vet out different vendors who archive correspondence whether it be email or text or whatever it may be. But upon looking at it, and again, this is hindsight, a lot of these vendors have an ability to capture all sorts of different applications. In talking about the empowerment that these executive directors should have been able to have on the trade desk, talking to their compliance officers, if they, everybody was like, this is how we communicate they should have been looking at the vendor and just saying, hey, can you capture this? Yes or no. Oh, you can't capture this. Let's try this venue instead. We have to look at the fact that 16 different firms all got hit with this exact same fine, all for the exact same business areas, whether it be traders and talking to the market participants or their junior traders or investment banking. That means this was a common practice in business. Everybody more or less was doing it. These are the 16 that were actually found. Right. And they're all talking to each other. 
and probably your firm too. But I think I think it's a, it's a theme, right? Like we're always gonna we're always gonna reiterate this whole idea that like your business and your compliance people need to work together, and they really need to partner up and make sure that they both understand where each other is coming from. Compliance is not the enemy, and the business is not the enemy. We need to come together at the end of the day and really be able to come up with a policy that's going to work and make sure that we can facilitate business the right way. And I think that's really the big takeaway in this case. So just to summarize, our two takeaways from these cases was really focusing on a firm's bring your own device policy, making sure that those policies that you've drafted for your firm are not sending your, your firm up to fail. Please consider issuing firm-issued devices, at least to the areas that need it, but probably to all employees, because let's be honest, all employees are probably doing business communications at all hours of the night on their personal device. The second issue is just the supervisory issues that, that resulted from these cases and just making sure that you take an opportunity to review your supervisory procedures, ensuring that you have synergy between your compliance officers and your business area to make sure that people are aware of what communications are happening on what systems and that it matches what's actually written down in your policies and procedures. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a reminder, Fines and Lines is a part of Trade Alliance, a consulting firm for broker dealers and investment advisors with trading operations and compliance. These episodes are intended to be casual and a fun take on discussing regulation, but our consultants are serious when it comes to working for you.